So I want you to love the Psalms. I want you to love the Psalms. I want to be a church that loves the Psalms. These 150 songs that were preserved for the church, for the people of God from way back when, a compilation of a lot of different authors, um, most notably the King David. But I want you to come to a, a deep love of the Psalms in your life. And the reason I want this more than anything um, for you is not just because this is true in my own life and I've come to really grow in appreciation for the Psalms, but because the Psalms, perhaps more than any other biblical text, have a way of forming us as people. They have a way of, of getting inside the mind and the heart and the emotions and the feelings and the experiences that we encounter as human beings and giving us language giving us uh, a window into the walk of faith over and against the walk of the ways of the world. Uh, the Psalms are, are very formative um, poems that actually deeply change us and shape us when they're taken up. That was timed, um, timed with that note. Um, I think we, we have some fuse problems, obviously. <laughs> Somebody can keep flipping that back on. That's fine. Thanks, Jake. Um, I know it's hot. Um, when, they're, when the Psalms are taken up routinely and regularly, they have a way, they can, they can form us and shape us. And many of the, the people that we look to in the church in the past who are models and examples to us of a godly life and character have used the Psalms as a daily routine in their life. Any yearly Bible reading plan that you look at will prioritize the Psalms. You'll read through the Psalms uh, again and again and again. And I want the Psalms for our community to become old friends that you're uh, aware of the territory that they bring, that you can kind of move around them and know them and understand them. Um, and I trust that as we begin this series tonight for the next few weeks, probably two months or so, and we'll come back to it year after year most likely, of looking at the Psalms, just taking a march through the Psalms, that we'll be fed and deepened uh, and nurtured in this life of faith. Um, and that's certainly the case when we get to Psalm 1, this beginning. Start on a good note, right? Make sure the first thing that people hear from you is something that they want to keep listening. Well, Psalm 1 does that for us, and it cuts right into the heart and addresses the issue of desire, the issue of love, of what is it that you love? What is it that's, that's driving you? What is it that's, that's uh, grabbing your affections? And Psalm 1 goes to that place and speaks to that place. And in doing so, it just goes ahead and categorizes all of life before us as human beings into two categories, into two ways to live. And it contrasts these as an introduction to the rest of the Psalter, the rest of these, these poems that, that speak of the life of faith. Psalm 1 stands as this, as this decision point saying, okay, which way are you going to go? Are you gonna, you're at the fork in the road. Are you going to go this way? Or are you going to go this way? Because the rest of this book is going to direct you in this way. And so Psalm 1 lays up for us this, this really wonderful imagery and contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. It starts out, blessed is the man. Happy is the man. The same word that gets translated into the Greek and then into the Beatitudes um, of the first big sermon that Jesus preaches. Blessed are those. So blessed is the man. And then it gives you this contrast. This man is not standing, uh, is not walking in the way, in, 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 uh, in the counsel of the wicked. 
not standing in the way of sinners, not sitting in the seat of scoffers. So on the one hand, you have this, over, this, this life over here that's defined by these three words, the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And just remember that you don't want to be over there. <laughs> you don't want to be over there. The wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers are united in one thing in particular, their rebellion against God and who God is and what God has revealed. Now, wicked is just a general term for the, the way of life that's over and against the ways that God has prescribed. Sinner is a term that more technically means to miss the mark. And we looked at that when we looked at Psalm 51 a couple of months ago during Lent, that sin can be basically understood as missing the target. The archer shooting the, the arrow at the, the bullseye misses the target. And sin is, in a sense, missing the target that God has set for human life. And then scoffers, it gets a little bit more intense and perhaps more apropos to this text because a scoffer is defined by someone who does not listen to instruction. A scoffer has something plugged in his ears so that he can't hear the advice and the counsel and the instruction of someone else. A scoffer is somebody who thinks that they can do life on their own terms. They can live life in the way that they want to live it. In G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, the second chapter is entitled Mad Men. And Chesterton describes at the beginning of this chapter a conversation that he's having with his publisher in London, walking around London. And the publisher is talking about some other author and says, oh, this guy's going to be okay because he believes in himself. And Chesterton just kind of thinks for a minute and then he responds, he's just relating the story, he responds back, you know. And, and as he does this, one of those London buses goes by with the name, and I don't know why this was on the side of a bus in London in the early 20th century, but the name of an insane asylum. And uh, Chesterton just says, you know, that's great, but everybody who believes in themselves is going to end up in the insane asylum. And uh, they're going to end up in the loony bin, he says, because all they have is themselves. And they're, and they're to be pitied in that, in that situation. So the publisher's kind of shocked, and he looks at Chesterton, and he says, well, if they don't believe in themselves, then who can they believe in? And Chesterton says, this is the reason that I'm writing this book, is to describe this one that we can believe in, this one that we can listen to and hear from. So the scoffer, the wicked, the sinner are united in their closed ear to the ways of God and his purposes in the world, walking in rebellion. They, they don't love what the happy man loves. Verse 2, but... This big change of direction. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The psalmist starting with this big grand note is saying, if you want to be happy, if you want to have true life, and we all do as human beings, then let me go to this, let me dissect inside you for a minute, get down to your heart and say, what is it that you love? What is it that, that you're obsessed over? We know a lot about obsession in, in, a, uh, in a culture. You could go to sports, Red Sox. That's an obsession for people of Boston. Um, you follow the blogs, you get the gear, you, you watch the games, you're interested in it. Um, or music groupies you know, who follow the band with like, every, every ounce of energy that they have and, and uh, you know, get the shows and go on tour and follow around. Um, or perhaps you could even take something as, as uh, 
prevalent in our world is money and say some people are obsessed over money and obsessed over the stock market and watching their assets kind of go up and down with these numbers that I don't know who knows how they work. Um, but we know a lot about obsession. Uh, this man who's happy and blessed, he's obsessed over the law of the Lord. Now this could mean um, a number of different things. Scholars are somewhat divided, but it certainly means at its, most bro at its broadest level, the instruction of God. This is what this man delights in. He delights in hearing the voice of his father. He delights in, 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 in being in tune with what God is speaking and saying and revealing as the way of life. He delights in this. He's obsessing over it, if you will. And he meditates on this law, on this instruction, day and night. In other words, he's not just kind of thinking about it for an hour and a half on a Sunday evening in a hot room. And he's not just thinking about it for 10 minutes in the morning. But he meditates, this word of, of a kind of churning and yearning over, uh, uh, studying over, pouring over, of immersing yourself in, day and night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is meditating on this instruction of God. This is what he loves. This is his delight. So right at the beginning, the contrast that the psalmist paints is between the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, united in their pursuit of life on their own terms, and ignorant of and closed off to the ways of God, over and against this man that's happy and blessed, that's painted up for us as, as life itself, who's in tune with the, the instruction in the ways of God. It's this contrast that's beginning to be painted. So there's a difference in their loves. The one loves their, themselves, loves their own opinion, their own ideas for how to live. The other loves God's ways, loves to hear their father's voice, longs to know it. And then the psalmist unpacks this contrast a little bit. In verses 3 and 4, he uses this wonderful imagery that probably most of you are familiar with, saying that there are diff there's different results now for these two kinds of people. There is, on the one hand, this righteous man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. You get this picture in an arid climate, uh, lacking water, kind of like Boston in the last couple of weeks, of this tree that's planted in this one place for it to be healthy, for it to weather the storms that it will encounter, for it to weather the heat, and in any circumstance, this tree's roots are going down underground and being fed by the stream of water. Now, note for just a second, Jesus calls himself living water, doesn't he? God talks about coming to him to drink and coming and to, to buy refreshment. God offers himself to human beings as a source of nourishment and energy and ultimately life. For with you is a fountain of life, the psalmist says elsewhere. God is a God who's giving life. And this tree has found its roots in this life-giving word of God so that it can weather any storm around it. And then it says in, in the end of verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. So you have this picture of something stable and rooted and fruit-bearing, prospering in all that he does. Now, this isn't a license to the prosperity gospel that says if you follow Jesus, your life's going to just make perfect sense 
and you're never going to have another tear. No. This means that you're so connected to the source of life that in any and every circumstance, and it may be the cross, which it was for Jesus, that you will prosper through that circumstance. You will have the resources to handle what life brings to you. And in that sense, the prospering is a direct result of the planting, the deep planting of an ear that's in tune with the voice of God, with the voice of our Father. Not so is the next word. Not so the wicked. Not so for the wicked. We get this picture of a tree planted firmly, not moving, healthy. Not so with the wicked, but they are like chaff. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. You know that, that I mean, we don't live in, in, in really a farming culture so much, but you take the stalk of wheat and the farmer beats it on the threshing floor and as he beats it, the, the, the good things, the grains of wheat fall to the ground and remain and the husk and the leaves and the things that have dried up blow away. There is no substance to these things. They just blow away. Picture for me that comes to mind, I grew up in Kansas until I was eight, is you know that picture of the tumbleweed just kind of blowing across the prairies of Kansas, just, just blowing with nothing substantial, with no, no rootedness to it. The psalmist is saying that the, the, the life of the wicked, though it may appear wonderful and though it may appear um, desiring, desirous, it has no substance to it. It's inconsequential. It's hollow. Mandy and I took a trip around uh, Europe before Chloe was born when I was studying over in England. And we went to Valencia, Spain in March where they have the Faya Festival. And um, a Faya is this massive, beautiful piece of artwork, but it's made out of paper mache. And so you walk around the city of a million people and at every major street corner, there are these, these gigantic, like five-story tall, massive um, pieces of art that are, they look, they look really imposing. And on the last night of the festival, they take a match and they put the match to the fire. And in all the squares around the city, there's these gigantic fires just, just burning up these pieces of art. And I, I, I think that's a good picture of the life of the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. It may look wonderful on the outside. It may look beautiful. It may look really, really appetizing. But it's hollow. And when the, mo the moment that a storm comes, to go back to Luke 6 that we read tonight, the moment that a test comes, the moment that a trial comes, that life will blow away. It'll blow away. There won't be anything left. Not so the wicked. This healthy tree that's bearing fruit, that's not withering, this is the way of those who have listened to the voice of God, whose love, whose affection is for the voice of their Father. The life that comes up in a flash and then disappears is the life of the wicked. I've quoted this proverb. I love this proverb, 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Motion, movement, lack of stability, fleeing when nobody's chasing after you. Though it offers great promise, the psalmist is saying, this life produces terrible fruit, no fruit. It produces nothing. It's inconsequential. It's appearance over substance. It's nothing. The psalmist reiterates this point 
poetically uh, in, in the literary form of the psalm by giving three lines to the simile of the righteous about the tree and just one passing line to the simile about the wicked, reinforcing in his form what he's saying in substance, that this way is nothingness. Proverbs say there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And this is the contrast that the psalmist is putting before us. He doesn't just say, though, that this affects the life that we lead now, though certainly it does, this tree versus the chaff. But then in verses 5 and 6, he goes on to talk about this, this um, contrast between the, 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 the future of the righteous over and against the wicked and says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows that is, the Lord loves. He watches over with a special kind of affection the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. The reason one is a tree and one is chaff is because the tree is connected to life itself. God is life. And the tree is rooted in that life. Jesus, who gives us a great example of the man of Psalm 1, says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, ear in tune with the will of his Father. In tune with the will of his Father. So this way, um, th this way of life that Jesus chooses over and against this way of death that leads to perishing, one other thing to say about the form um, as we come to a close is that the first word of the psalm, blessed, begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last word of the psalm, perish, begins with the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And that's not an accident. We have a phrase in English that says, from A to Z, right? And what we mean is that this is comprehensive. This covers every scenario that you could imagine. And so what the psalmist is inviting us to at the opening of the psalms is to this fork in the road that each of us comes to almost on a daily basis and says the rest of this book is going to show us this way of faith, of rootedness in the life of God over and against the way of self-determination and a closed heart to the instruction and leading of your creator and your redeemer. Like Deuteronomy 30, choose life. I have set before you life and death. Choose life choose life. And as we take up these psalms week after week, we'll find that they lead us down this way of the righteous to root us and establish us in the very life of God that's given freely, freely by grace in Jesus. Amen.